Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. And I could put my brush into this juicy paint instead of a lot of water and a little bit of paint. I realized there was no limit to what I could do. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show that gives you artistic tools you can put to work. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. Today, I'm talking with artist Jeannie McGuire. In the conversation, you'll discover a way of working with watercolor that is much more similar to oil and acrylic, how to keep moving forward even when you're not totally sure what to do next, and some great ideas for getting your viewers where you want them, plus a whole lot more. In the extended cut bonus available in the Podcast Art Club, you'll get practical ideas for how to push through fear, what to do if you fall in love with an area, and how to decide if you should keep it. You can find links to the Podcast Art Club at the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 88. Hi, Jeannie. Welcome to the podcast. How did you first get started painting? And then how did you find watercolor? Thank you, Kelly, for inviting me in the show. Watercolor has always been a part of my art journey. Since I was young, I did all the different mediums of art. My mom introduced me to some painting on wood when I was little, but I got into the professional watercolor pigments when I joined the Pittsburgh Watercolor Society. What was the reasoning to join the Pittsburgh Watercolor Society? What was going on then that made you decide like, oh, I want to join a professional organization? I was part of a street fair in a community nearby, and there were large plywood boards whitewashed for artists to paint on. And the artist next to me said to me, as she saw how I painted, you really ought to look into the Pittsburgh Watercolor Society. And so I did. I entered, I was accepted right away, and then I had the opportunity to be around so many artists of high-caliber work. You said you've always painted. Was there a moment in that where you decided, I'm going to take this seriously, and I'm going to take watercolor specifically serious as a medium? I always knew I would be an artist. So that wasn't even a question for me. As far as watercolor goes, I always drew. And I was in graphic design initially for my training. And so the drawing was always a part of that. The watercolor in particular was something that I built on based on how easy it was to use in my home versus oil painting that would entail turpentine and so forth. What do you love about watercolor? It's so versatile. The pigments have a variety from transparent to opaque. So there's transparent, semi-transparent, semi-opaque, opaque. There's granulations. There's just so many different properties to watercolor pigments that I haven't found in other pigments like gouache, acrylic, oils. The paper is very versatile that you work on. There's the professional surfaces of hot press, cold press, rough. There's different makes of paper. There's different sizes. The brushes have a variety. 
So you put all of that together and I feel that it's more versatile for me. If I wanted to change the paper size, I just have to crop it. If I was working on canvas, I'd have to restretch a canvas and I don't want to do that. Well, then what's tricky about watercolor? Well, the way I paint with watercolors is very different than what people are traditionally taught. I jokingly say I never took the class on how to paint with watercolor. And I'm really glad I didn't. I mean, I've had other forms of art, but not watercolor. And so I just felt that working with it the way we did when we were young with pads of paint wasn't giving me anything that thrilled me. And when I joined the Watercolor Society and was around artists and saw all their equipment, their palettes, their, the way they use their pigments, it was an education for me. And when I then acquired my own palette and pigments through a friend, and I could put my brush into this juicy paint instead of a lot of water and a little bit of paint, I realized there was no limit to what I could do. I could paint just like an oil painter because I liken myself to it to be more like an oil painter than a watercolorist. But I just call myself a painter because I create and this is just happens to be the pigment that I'm using. Do you use your pigments straight out of the tube or is there some way that you sort of get your pigments ready to be used in a painting? I have a, a Robert Wood palette that has deep wells. So I'll squeeze maybe a quarter to a third of a tube, 15 millimeter tube into my well. And if it's stirrable, meaning I put the end of a thin paintbrush in it and stir it, if it isn't like the consistency of yogurt, then I'll just square a little bit of water into it just so it has a creamy consistency to it. So that when I prepare my brush, which is a thing I do, I get my brush, I pound it into my water jar <laughs> to get the water to go completely into the bristles of the brush. And then I squeegee the water off on the edge of my water container, tap it on a towel, and now I have a damp brush. I take that damp brush, just dig it right into the pigment, swish it into my palette, just to get it even, the pigment even over the brush. And then I go directly to the painting. Where most artists are putting water, a lot of water on their brush, putting some slimy pigment on their brush, <laughs> and maybe even dunking their brush back into the water and then onto the paper. And you're just not going to get rich pigment and really impact of, of any kind of contrast on your painting if you keep using too much water. So that makes sense for like when you set up your palette for the first time, but how do you make sure that it stays that creamy consistency between painting sessions, like for the next painting session? I can reconstitute the paint. So I have an eye drop, you know, a little dropper. I can drop water into the wells or a spray bottle. And when I travel, I definitely have to let the palette all dry up so I can put it in a roller bag and get on a plane. So I leave the lid of my palette off to dry. But then when I go to use it again, I have to spray the water in each well. And then I put the lid on it for a couple hours so that that time frame allows the water to seep into the pigments a bit. And then I take the lid off and with the end of my little skinny paintbrush, stir each pigment. And then it's the same as it was in the very beginning because it'll dry up. That's just the nature of paint. It will dry up. Is there a brand of paint that you find works best for this way of working? Or will any professional grade watercolor paint from a tube work in this? Any 
brand will work. I just happen to have a lot of Daniel Smith pigments. That's what I started out with because that's what my friend was using. And I grew to love some of those pigments. Like the Naples yellow in Daniel Smith is unlike anybody else's Naples yellow, for instance. And I like that color. But I'll use other brands, M. Graham or, you know, any others that I acquire. How many paints do you work with in general? And I guess, is that different than how many paints you'll work with for a specific painting? Well, my palette has probably 20, maybe 15 to 20 wells. But for a painting, what I find, if I look at any particular painting that I've done, I can count on one hand how many colors I've used in that color family. So there's usually five, including the white of the paper. It's just where I gravitate toward. I don't like to have a lot of different colors. So I try to limit it to different proportions of the colors I use. So that, for instance, if I said, go get the red painting, you would know which painting I'm talking about because it would be primarily red, even though it might have turquoise or some other colors in it. You mentioned the different characteristics. Do you have any type of characteristics like transparent or opaque that you like to work with? Or do you kind of work with all of them? I work with all of them, but I do know the properties of some of these pigments when I go to use them. For instance, if I know a pigment is very staining, I may not use it in a particular situation because I do take the pigment away on my paper. I will take a damp brush, brush over areas that I want to remove paint, take a paper towel, wipe it off. I might do this several times and then continue to paint either on top of it while it's wet or let it dry. If it's a staining pigment, it won't remove as well as a pigment that is non-staining. But every situation I should say is different. So there's not a one set way to go about it. You just mentioned that your process adds, but also subtracts. What do you need from your brush and your paper to make that possible? Good question. (laughs) I use the professional grade cotton sheets, you know, the um, Lana Corral or Arches are the main two that I use, 140 pounds, simply because I do a lot of paintings. I have to carry a lot in my portfolio when I travel and 300 pounds would be so heavy. I iron my paintings on the back to flatten them out for anybody that's wondering, well, how do you keep the paper flat? Because I don't tape it down. I don't tape the paper down. So the brushes are Robert Simmons Skyflow Flats. They are a synthetic brush, but the description is sable-like. But I have found that they can take a rigor of a beating. My paper can take a beating. And I sometimes think I have put paint down, taking it away so many times, I am going to put a hole in the paper. And the only time I really come close to that is when the sizing on the paper is bad. And believe me, I could go on about that. So many times the paper is sized inferior. I probably should have just sent the whole pack of paper back, but I don't like paint from one pack continuously. So I forget about it. But even on those papers where the sizing is bad, it's another thing I have to get over. It's a challenge for me. So I have to figure out how can I paint on this painting, continue to paint on it without putting a hole in the paper. So I've kind of figured that out. (laughs) Is that part of how you approach a painting, like the challenge, like take it on as a challenge? Yeah. And I don't know why I like to put myself through this torture, but I do. It's 
I've started a painting. I like the design. I am invested into it for a certain amount of time. And when something goes awry, I just look at it. Okay, now I have to figure this out. I have to figure out how to do this because that is the way I paint. And I have grown as an artist because of the problems that arise. And it has made me be more creative, more intuitive and more professional in the long run. So it's a risk to paint like I paint, but I've grown from it. Could you walk us through your process? I work in series often, like I have a woman's series, men's series, I have an industrial series. And so I have a lot of photo reference. I like to work from old photos. I got involved with old photos going through my mom's photo albums of her when she was young. And I was fascinated with her mother when her mother had passed away when my mom was only four. So I'm looking at these very tiny like photos that are maybe like a, an inch and a half by an inch and a half. And I have a magnifying loop. It's called a printer's loop that I look through to get the detail. So I can see the detail when it's a real photo. So I pick the photo reference that I want to use. I get an idea of what the size should be of the paper. It should be small painting, should be a large painting. What is the dimension? Should it be square, rectangle, vertical, horizontal, extended horizontal or an extended vertical? You know, I decide what works best for the situation in my reference. What do I want to say? What is the story that is going to develop out of the way I have designed? And I say designed because that comes into my thought processes from the very beginning. Once I've chosen the paper surface also that I want to use, you know, should it be a, a hot press, something very flat and smooth, a cold press with a little bit of texture or rough surface with, a, you know, a real rough texture. And I've decided on the size and the dimensions. Then I'll do a light rendering on the paper. And then I go through and do all the detailed work, looking at the photo with my printer's loop. And then the painting part starts. And the whole concept of what I think about when I'm painting is creating some kind of movement or story or character development of the reference material. Sometimes I have an idea from the beginning of what I want to say in this painting, and sometimes I don't have a clue. I just am very attracted to the expression or the body language of the people that I'm painting. And I forgot to mention that I paint only people. <laughs> I don't paint backgrounds, scenery, but on a rare occasion. So my approach to painting is guiding the viewer across the page. I always start with my biggest brush to keep me loose. So that's a two inch Skyflow brush. And I prep it with prep my brush, get the pigment on my brush, and sometimes it makes no difference what pigment I choose, what color. That's a question I always get. But I'll start at one side of the painting and I'll work into the background, maybe behind a shoulder. And then I'll come into the face and cross the cheek over the nose and maybe then skip over to something on an arm or a background off to the right. I always work across the page and it's my way of getting the viewer's attention and putting pigment where. I want the viewer to look, meaning us that are looking at the painting. So as I paint, I get more ideas about who this person might be, the story I might create from, the marks that I see that I've made, and it develops from there. 
When you paint across the page, does that mean you always bring a color all the way across the page? Well, it would be the width of the brush and then where I embellish it. But it can either start from one side of the page or it might just start on a face. It depends on what I'm painting. So say I have a face that fills the whole page cropped off at the top, you know, maybe into the forehead and cropped maybe at like shoulder. I might want to bring attention to the eyes. Say that was my goal. I might start my brush over by the ear. I might then hop over to under the eye to the cheekbone. I follow, it's almost like following the topography of a landscape, coming over a cheekbone, over the nose. Then I might stop again. I might put my brush up into the eyebrow, you know, on the right side. And then I might do something in the background over the, you know, behind the shoulder. So in a way, I'm kind of carving out 3D type feel of this subject, still have one color on my brush, and I've put pigment on my subject and I put pigment into the background because the background to me is just as important as the figure themselves. So I talk about the background a lot as being a supporting role, like in acting, to the lead, which is the figure that I'm painting. I went through a period early on where I'd spend way more time on the background than I would on the figure itself because I needed to conquer that. I needed to figure out who I was as an artist. How was I going to paint this background so that it accentuated the figure? So that was a lot of intuitive painting. What do you need to know about your subject and have decided about this painting before you make that first mark? I basically have already thought about the design because of the way I've drawn the painting on the paper, just the composition of it. I know whether I'm focusing just on an expression, if it's a full figure that I'm working on. And so there's more background showing, there's arms involved, legs perhaps. I will be thinking about that gesture. If it's a group of people, I will be thinking about how they interact with each other. It's a process. So for instance, when I do teach workshops, I always start my first project out with the eye, have people draw it really big. So we're just focusing on the eye. Then I have them do faces, a series of three faces, because we're only focusing on the face. Then the next project is the single figure. So we're just focusing on a figure, its gestures, its immediate background, not scenery, but how to do an obscure background to accentuate that figure. And then a group of figures gets more complicated. So we have background elements, we have interaction of people, and it's a challenge to figure out how those figures might relate to each other or not relate to each other. Going in, does that mean you've sort of decided, okay, the eyes are important in this painting or the group is important? Like you've made a decision about what's important sort of holistically. Yes. Yeah. Often it's the eyes. Sometimes I'm trying to get across a sense of where somebody is. For instance, there's a painting on my website called Rust, and it's one of my machinist series. And I wanted to get the sense that he was in a soldering job. You know, he he was using a soldering gun. It was hot, sweaty, sooty. And I was using orange as my main focus color. But at the very end of the painting, I started to add this gray, this muted gray as another layer over his cheek. And what happened, it looked like it was soot that cracked, but he had a slight smile. And that was the thing that bothered me from the beginning. How am I going to pull this off as a work of art 
that could hang in anybody's home or place of business. But this guy has a slight smile that makes it so personal. And then I decided my story is he was just stepping outside for a smoke break. And that immediate cold air just dried that soot on his face, on his hot, sweaty face. And that and it started to crack. The soot started to crack on his face. And then I knew the painting was done. If I was doing a figure or a group of figures, I'm very in tune to hands. If the hands are showing, that's always a focus for me. So I will make sure that I paint it in such a way that the viewer is drawn down to the hands as well as the face. Because we're always going to look at the face. We're always going to look at eyes as a viewer. And then next, we look at the gesture. What is the figure doing? So the hands are always important to me. When that first color you bring in across, do you generally work dark to light or light to dark? How do you build the values in your paintings? I can start with light or dark. It doesn't matter to me. Because of the way I paint, I don't have a problem getting some initial darks down. And I encourage people to do that sometimes because they're so afraid to paint this way. They think they have to start light and build up, but those are rules. And if they look at themselves just as painters and they allow themselves to be creative and try to do the opposite of what they've learned, then that'll shake them up a bit and make them be more creative. But if I put dark down first, I can put color on top of it. I can put even yellow on top of it. Even if it's, you know, if I mix it with titanium white, for instance, I can take pigment away and then add other pigment. So it's so versatile of my approach to painting that I I just see where I go with it. And if I want to put dark down first, I do. If I don't, if I want to start with yellow, I'll start with yellow. When you say design, do you mean like you've decided what the big shapes will be, placement on the page? Like, what are those design decisions that you've made? Oh, that is such a big question because there's so many different ways, so many things I think about. One is the placement on the page. How is it cropped? I often have my figures going off the page, at least at three sides. I shouldn't say at least. When I look around at my paintings, (laughs) it usually goes off three ways and maybe not on the top or vice versa. I like to bring focus directly into my figure. Sometimes I do have more space around my figures, but the design then to connect to the outside of the paper could be my linear lines that I do. I do these obscure shapes and linear lines, whether they're horizontal or vertical, to bring attention into my subject. So for instance, I will bring in some Vertical lines, for instance, to bring in attention maybe to a shoulder or an arm if it's kind of propped up and elevated. It's my way of bringing attention. So that part is like a design element. And how I paint that, it could be a contrast to part of the figure. There could be brush strokes that lend themselves to texture that will bring a design element in to give you a sense of movement, for instance. I'll use these dry brush effects that really can say movement, energy, noise, that it's loud. If I wanted it to be soft, like there's quiet space, I wouldn't be using a lot of dry brush type gestures, composition. So also could be shapes. So I have a painting, for instance, there's a girl in a strapless dress with a hat. She's looking down. Her dress makes a an arc. Her hat makes a convex arc. Her strapless dress 
makes an arc, her shoulders make an arc. So then what I do is I create an arc in the background. I mimic the shapes that I see in my subject. And so I make everything work in conjunction with each other. So that to me is a design element by creating that arc. I did a painting of a dancer, a young dancer. I called it Prima. And I was thinking about how when dancers are warming up, they're doing their either plies and so forth. And their toe is going up and out and around. And they're making circles on the floor with their toes. So I start making circles or arcs in my background of my painting to give you that sense of what they do with their toes. Are those lines drawn in in your drawing or do you I mean, you know, they're going to be there, but you actually draw the lines with your brush is the first time that line might get made on the page. No, I do it with the pencil. That's a good question. I draw in detail on my paper with heavy lines and light lines. I erase part of my drawing to get a sense of movement or mood or to direct a viewer in a certain direction. For instance, if I wanted a focus, so say there's a man standing with his arm on his hip. So his fist is on his hip, his elbow is sticking out. If I wanted to bring attention to that, where that hand met that hip, I might bring a horizontal, slightly curved line from the side of the paper directly over to that gesture. I'm bringing attention to that hand. I want the viewer to see that hand. But then the way I handle the painting part of it, of that gestural directional line is another thing. But I draw it on there initially to give me the visual of what I want to say as the painting develops. So the lines that I do in the background, any shapes or directional lines, as I call them, I draw them with my pencil. And there's heavy lines, there's light, there's squishy, scratchy lines. I do shading. I'm real messy with my drawing to a degree, but it's very detailed. And I use soft lead I use a mechanical pencil with a 6B lead or a 5B lead, and it allows me to do a nice energetic kind of mark, dark, where I want to put emphasis. And I like to talk about that to the students in my workshops to get them to start thinking about how their contrast level in their painting will be. If they start out with a contrast in their pencil marks, then they will be more inclined to see where they could put contrast in the painting when they start using pigment. Well then, yeah, how would that then, let's say you have that horizontal line that comes to the hand, what would that indicate to you then that you wanted to do with paint? I would either use a pigment as a line or a stroke. I might then start to develop it vertically down, just take the pigment down into the background. There might be some texture that happens in there. I might add another color. It's really hard to describe with words, but it's just my way of when I draw a pencil line to help me know the whole painting. If I did no pencil lines in the background at all, then I would be having to make that up with my paint. And just for me visually, maybe it's my graphic sense. I just like to have the black pencil lines, marks as I like to call them, on the paper. I just think it's beneficial because I see too many artists struggling. They, they have a figure in the middle of a white paper and they're petrified. They don't know how to put pigment on the face. They want to just paint the hair or the shirt. They might even leave the eyeballs out because they just don't know what to do with them. And then there's this white background 
and then they're stuck. The figure might be partly done or mostly all done, and they haven't done a thing with the background. So to me, that has two elements that are unconnected. Your figure is unconnected to the background and the background is unconnected to the figure. So I like to do them simultaneous. And when you draw lines in your background from the very beginning, then you're thinking visually, you're thinking of everything as a unit instead of separate units. Where do ideas develop for you in the sense of like, you're laying down all these lines in the drawing? Have you been doing sketchbook work to make any of those plans or value studies? Or is that all happening in your mind? And then on your paper, because you erase a bunch? Yeah, I don't do pre sketches at all. If I did a drawing in a sketchbook, that would be the art for me. And I just know the way I am, I would never follow it on my paper, on my big paper. And I just know that about myself. I, I've never done that. You know, the only time I draw in sketchbooks is when I'm doing a figure drawing session, you know, with a live model, which I love to do. And I will use those drawings as my reference for a painting, the same as I will a photograph. But no, I do all of the creative work directly on my paper, because then it just becomes this living organism in a way that just grows from the very beginning. And I I have this thing where I like my paintings to look like they're lived in. You know, we live in this environment, our world where there's lots of sound, there's grit, there's, you know, pristine, there's like, you name all these different adjectives. And so I like to bring that into my paintings. Like years ago, I remember people being so petrified of creating mud. You know, everything had to be so clean. All the pigments had to be so clean to put onto their paper. And I'd use, I'd combine a lot of the muck that was developing in my palette. And I'd use that on my painting as though it was a pigment. So I would jokingly say I use mud to my advantage. But I like all those dingy colors. But so getting back to your question about it all builds onto my paper and then that is the art and it looks like it feels like it's lived in for a while like a lot of us think of especially with watercolor it's like you know we do the value studies we have the plan and then we translate that plan that we've already decided everything onto our watercolor paper but it sounds like you're still deciding a bunch of things on that watercolor paper. Like before you pull out the paints, like you're erasing lines, you're adding lines, that there's still a real dynamic interaction between you and the paper as you like develop ideas on the paper. Yeah, I don't, I just don't do a preconceived plan. About as pre-planning as I would get, other than the drawing, for instance, I did a dancer, a painting of a dancer. It was the end of her dance and it was her pose, the way she had tilted her head back and her hand came up toward her cheek. And it was, I immediately thought, serene. This is such a serene pose. And to me, that serene was blue, light blue and a light aquamarine. And so I painted the painting in those color choices. That's about as much of a pre-plan or like the story of rust. I wanted him to be orange to show the heat of that machine shop. So I will occasionally pick a pigment that will say something about my figure, where they are, but that's only in certain circumstances. Often I'm just making up the colors as I go. But no, I don't pre-plan. I just allow myself to see the marks that I've made, 
there's a painting that I did of one of my machinists that I was, I, I was attracted to him because of the way his hair, it looked like he just got out of bed. He had this great head of hair and the hair's flopping over to the side and his eyes are real squinty. You know, it, he really looked like he just got out of bed. And so I was playing around with these eyes with different colors on each eye. That's a thing I do too. I make the eyes different. And they were very squinty. The one in particular was really squinty and there was some red and some charcoal kind of color in there. But it wasn't until I got down to where his neck was, I was putting in some skin tone and then I kind of skipped over onto his shoulder and put more skin tone. And there was a white strip left on his shoulder. And I thought, oh, it looks like a t-shirt. Oh, he's a lifeguard at the Jersey Shore. And then my story just popped in. And I looked at those eyes, just the way I had painted them. And I thought this one here with the red, it's really squinty. That eye is looking out into the distance, way out to see if anybody's head's bobbing underwater far out. And then the other eye is a little bit more open. And I made it a little bit more opaque. And it's looking at the near shore. And so there was my story. But that didn't come out until I made these marks on the shoulder that led me to think this is a T-shirt. And then why a lifeguard at the Jersey Shore? Why that popped into my head? I don't know. <laughs> but if I didn't allow myself to be intuitive enough to figure out a story just by what I visually see and bring in ideas from books I've read, movies I've seen, life situations that I'm going through, then my art wouldn't be what it is. That's why it's so unique is nobody has lived or been reading the stories that I have been involved in at that moment. And I encourage other people that to just be as unique as you possibly can, spend time in your studio and just bust through these paintings on your own accord, um, not paying any attention to what anybody else does or what, what anyone else has taught you. You don't necessarily know a story when you start. So how do you build a painting before you know a story? And then how does that change once you know the story? Good question. So for instance, I started a painting of a single figure. It was a woman that had her arms outstretched on the back of a chair. And I thought this is going to be part of my women's series. I had done other paintings where the women have elegant dresses on, strapless dress, and this woman had the same. I started out with red on her dress and my reference material was a bride. So she had a white dress on, but I changed her completely into a different setting. I, instead of a couch that she was sitting on her elbows, just the way her elbows were making points, I developed a chair behind her to mimic her elbows. And I made like a 60s style chair and I made her dress red. I made the chair lime green and I gave her red hair. And then I started to put red on her face. And then it, it was like such a mess. And I was trying to take the red off. I couldn't get it off of her face. It was so stained. She was a mess. But I liked the dress. I liked the hair. I liked the background. I liked the chair. So my challenge was, how was I going to fix her face? I had no story. I didn't know who this lady is. You know, what am I trying to paint here? So what I had in front of me was a lot of what I liked. I liked the dress. I liked the brush strokes. I liked the whole quality of the painting, the design, the application of pigment, the contrast, 
But the face, which is key, is what I didn't have together at all. And I kept messing it up. So then I started putting titanium white on because titanium white is just another pigment in my palette. And I use titanium white because it is opaque. I would put marks down, strokes. I wouldn't like it. I take it off, dry it, try it again and again and again. And her expression just kept changing. At one point, I liked the quality of how it was painted, but she looked so sad. She looked like she had been crying for days. And I thought, oh, this is just too sad, but I like it. I like the way it looks. So that's a risk is that I had to go in again and change it. And what finally her, her face came to where it just looked passe. She was just staring and it was a feeling I had with that expression that I thought, I know this look, I can't quite finish the storyline here. And I was working on adjusting her strapless dress. And there was one little mark, like a rectangle coming out onto her arm from the top of her strapless dress. It looked like the tab of a paper doll. Like we had paper dolls when we were little and we'd bend that tab around the paper doll to stay on. And I thought, that's it. She puts the clothes on. She takes them off. She puts them on. She takes them off. She's all for show. So you can read into that the story you want. It could be she's a model or maybe she's somebody's eye candy. We don't know. But that is the kind of way I think. And I allow my story to just be put out there no matter when that story is developed whether it's early on or at the very, very end of the painting. And then the viewer, of course, will read in their own story to what they see. What I'm struck by listening to you talk is the level of patience and the level of confidence that this will become something. Did you have to learn both of those? Yes. And I don't necessarily always have patience. At least early on, I did not. I would get so mad. I would get so mad at myself. And early on, I didn't know I could continue working on a painting once I didn't like it. I thought that I had to start over. And I remember one of these early paintings. I liked a lot about the painting and I didn't know how to handle a certain area. And I thought I messed it up and I was so mad. I was just so mad at myself. You just feel this rage going through you. And that was the first time I used titanium white. And I just dug my brush right into it. And within a matter of seconds, it just seemed like time slowed down. And I just was, brush strokes were going all over the place. And then I cropped the bottom at the bottom of these girls' shoes and cropped the top right above their head. And so it went from a vertical painting to a slightly horizontal one. And I went, that's it. And I got that feeling, that zing in my gut. And I went, oh my gosh, that's a shame I had to get so mad. And I thought, all right, I am just going to imagine the work is going in the trash. And I never throw it away. I'll put it in my throwaway pile, I used to call it, that never gets thrown away. So I always tell people, only paint on one side of your painting. Don't try to do something on the other side, like so many people like to do to save money. Because you never know when you're going to pull that painting together. And you might pull the painting on the backside together as well. And then how are you going to display it in your house? You have two paintings on one piece of paper. But I have many, many times been so mad at myself 
because I can't pull a painting together to my satisfaction. And I could be on a deadline. And that's when it's just agonizing. So over the years, I've had to learn how to temper that, how to manage it better. And it's a very difficult thing. I've joked around many times that I'm involved in a painting. I can't walk away from it until I have something substantial that I feel good about. But then the kids have to eat dinner. And it's like, oh, do they have to eat? <laughs> of course, I laugh. But yeah, we just don't want to leave the art until we have something satisfactory. So it's hard. It's hard. So patience is something I've had to learn the hard way, I guess. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? I think I would probably ask them about what do they feel inside? What is it they yearn to do? Do they want to make just a pretty picture that's compositionally correct and pretty and would be accepted by many people? Is that the goal? Is the goal to express yourself in some way? Are you trying to work through something in your life? I've had many artists do that where they are working through a trauma. They're trying to have a reconciliation with themselves and a mother or, you know, some person in their life. That type of work can be totally different than I want to paint a pretty picture. I'm not necessarily the workshop to take if you want to paint a pretty picture. <laughs> There's other instructors that can really guide people much, much better on that. I'm all about story and character development and figuring out who you are as a person and how you can put that down on paper with your imagination. You can learn more about Jeannie McGuire, including her workshops at her website, JeannieMcGuire.com, and we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Jeannie. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Did you enjoy the episode? Take a screenshot and share it in your Instagram stories. Tag me at Learn to Paint Podcast so I can say hello and thank you. And if you want more great conversation with McGuire, join us in the podcast art club for the extended cut bonus. You'll get practical ideas on how to push through fear, what to do if you fall in love with an area, and how to decide if you should keep it. You can find a link to that extended cut bonus and McGuire's workshops when you head to the show notes at learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 88. Thank you to everyone over in the podcast art club. You make this show possible. Extra shiny thank yous to High Gloss supporters, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryant, Pam Lyle, and Slow River Studio. Happy painting!